One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Noseworthy. Hey guys, welcome back. This is episode 94 in the Inflammation Nation. Today we're talking about lectins, oxalates, and, and histamines. And if you just dropped into this episode, this is your first time here. Welcome to the Inflammation Nation. But this is part of a series. Um, we're kind of embedded deep in a series where we're talking about lab tests that I would and would not spend my own money on. And today we're talking about another portion of tier two testing, which are tests that I uh, don't run on everyone, but I find myself commonly running uh, just because of the type of conditions or people and cases that I work with. Um, and so in last episode, we talked about food allergies and sensitivities. And, and I drew the distinction between reactions that are rooted in two different antibody systems. And I gave you some hints and clues as to how you can distinguish between allergic IgE responses and an IgG sensitivity. Basically, if you eat a food and, and you very quickly get hives or itching, you get a rash, your lips or your face and your ears swell up, um, or you have difficulty breathing, then you probably have a true IgE-based allergy to whatever it was that you ate. And this is the type of reaction we typically see with things like peanuts and shellfish. Um, these are the ones that are tested by skin prick testing, or you can do that through blood as well. But IgG sensitivities are different in that they are not just a different antibody system, but also they can take up to three days to manifest. And so they're hard to harder to pin down through simple observation and just paying attention to what you ate. And two mistakes that people often make in trying to figure out if they have a food-based reaction are, number one, their window of observation is too short. And number two, they, they look to their gut to see if they're reacting. Remember that sensitivities, uh, especially antibody-mediated ones, uh, take time to peak. And if you have some symptom flare-up, and you think it's a sensitivity and not an allergy, but a sensitivity, then don't ask yourself what you ate in the last meal that you may have had just two hours ago, right? You might need to go back a couple of days. And so to really track this down, you need to track your meals probably for a couple of weeks to try to spot the pattern of some kind of a trigger food in the onset of symptoms. And yes, the, it can be as short as two hours, but it can also be as long as three days. Of course, it's a lot easier when you eat the same things from week to week. But if your diet is widely varied, then the patterns can be harder to spot. And this is why IgG sensitivity testing can be helpful. But remember that you have to be eating the foods that you're testing to get reliable results and to avoid false negatives. Now, the second mistake is assuming that food sensitivities only cause gut symptoms. And I understand why people assume this, like food goes into your gut, and so shouldn't food reactivity be gut-based? And the answer is no. Food sensitivities can cause any symptom in any individual. And I pointed out in the last episode that whereas in the case of true IgE allergy, the symptoms are the same regardless of the food or the person, and they're determined by 
the IgE activation itself. It's just the nature of the system to create hives and itching and swelling and, and closing down of earways. But with IgG sensitivity, the reactivity is unique to the person and not to the pathway. So maybe you eat gluten and you get a migraine and I eat gluten and I get joint pain and swelling. Somebody else gets depression and somebody else gets a bad night's sleep and, and so on. And another way to think about this is that IgG reactions, sensitivities, are rooted in more generalized, perhaps systemic inflammation, which amplifies whatever else you have going on in other places, or perhaps brings to surface something that you were simply predisposed to, but hasn't happened yet. Now, let's talk about another series of food reactivity, lectins, histamines, and oxalates. And, and there's limited testing here. So really the testing that we're talking about is kind of like self-directed clinical trials where you take certain foods out of your diet and see how you do, and maybe you reintroduce them and see how you do. Um, and yes, you can measure histamines and serum, uh, and there are some functional medicine-based tests, very limited, that might give us insight into things like oxalates. Um, there's really not really, really good testing here like we have with IgE testing or IgG and IgA testing for food sensitivities. But these reactions to lectins and histamines and oxalates are, they're not reactions in the sense of a classic IgE allergy, nor are they an IgG sensitivity. They're also not intolerances like what we see with the enzyme deficiency that causes lactose intolerance. Nevertheless, some of these items do invoke an immune response, but there are many that don't, and they work through a different mechanism. So between the, the lectins, the histamines, and the oxalates, we're going to start with what I think is the most common of the three and work our way to the least, and we'll probably spend most of this episode talking about lectins. So we'll save the histamines and the oxalates for the next chat when we get together again. Um, now, not everybody is lectin-sensitive. And I'm using the word sensitive in a generic sense, right? Not to be confused with an IgG sensitivity. And I know that might be confusing, but it's the language we use to refer to any type of reaction, regardless of whether it invokes an IgG response. Sometimes we use the word sensitivity to convey the simple idea that the immune system is activated. Now, lectins are, are proteins that are found in foods that have the potential to bind to sugar or carbohydrate molecules that are part of the outer membrane structure of all of your cells. And quite often when we talk cell biology and we talk about cell membranes, we tend to focus on what's called the bilipid layer, which is a, a protein and lipid structure that keeps the cells together. But part of the cell wall, which helps keep the cells together and separates the inside of the cell from the outside, is also a network of sugar molecules that participate number one in the cell wall structure, but also in intracellular processing. And, and they allow the cell to have adhesion and recognition capabilities, meaning that the lipid and the protein portion of the cell walls, along with the carbohydrates, forms a barrier to prevent things from passing into and out of the cell at random. Whereas more specifically, the sugar or carbohydrate part of the cell wall allows things to bind to the outside of the cell, attach themselves to the cell in some way, which can then trigger a response inside the cell. And some of the things that can bind to the sugar part of the cell wall are these lectin proteins. Obviously not the only thing, but that's the topic of our chat and our discussion today. 
Now, <clears throat> pardon me, research shows that these um, sugar molecules that are uh, called oligosaccharides not just help keep the form and structure of the cell, but they allow the cell to communicate with other cells. And, and part of how they do this is to allow certain proteins that are floating in your bloodstream to bind to the cells so that cells know what's going on in different parts of your body. So let's say we have a cell doing something in a distant part of the body. It creates a protein. It releases that into the bloodstream, and that can float around and bind to cells in different places so that the cells in the different places know what was happening at the site of origin. And lectins are produced by a wide range of living organisms, from microbes like bacteria to mammals. And they can be grouped according to their species of origin. So we have algae or algal lectins. We have fungal lectins. We have bacterial lectins, animal lectins, and we have plant lectins. And, and it's the latter, the plant lectins, that tend to be the most problematic for people who are sensitive to them. And the sensitivity is perhaps more pronounced in people of certain blood types and certainly higher prevalence of lectin sensitivity found in the realm of autoimmunity. Now, this idea that certain blood types react to different foods based on their lectin content has been around for a long time. Uh, as far as I can tell, since back in the, the middle of the 1800s or so. But it wasn't until Peter, uh, Dr. Peter Dadamo, who's a naturopathic physician, wrote a book called The Blood Type Diet back in 1996. It wasn't until then that this idea of certain plant lectins don't combine well with certain blood types, that's when it became popular. Now, I'm not going to review the book or, or his approach, but I will tell you that I was in practice. I was in uh, chiropractic practice back then. It was before I got into functional medicine. Um, when this book became popular, and at the time I had a lot of clients coming in asking what I thought, and some had read the book and had implemented the diet. And the, res the response was like what we see with pretty much everything else, right? Some people felt better and others didn't notice any changes. I can't say that anybody got worse, but there was a lot of people that did the blood type diet. They measured their blood type or de defined their blood type. They changed their diet according to the guidelines of Dr. Dodamo's work and just nothing changed. Um, and, and what that tells me is that avoiding certain lectins based on your blood type diet alone is helpful for some, but not for all. And, and this is a reminder that there's no end-all, be-all diet and everything, uh, including the diet, has to be personalized. So let me be clear on a couple of things. All foods contain lectins. Some contain more than others. And we tend to find a higher abundance of especially certain types of lectins in the plant foods. But even animal proteins contain lectins. They just contain different kinds and perhaps smaller amounts. Not all lectins are the same. Some are more immune stimulating than others. And most of the problems tend to come from plant-based lectins in, um, for example, vegetables, especially nightshade vegetables, your potato, tomato, eggplant, peppers, capsicums. We also see uh, plant-based lectins that tend to cause problems in nuts and seeds. We see them in beans and legumes and also in grains. And again, some plant-based lectins are more of an issue than others for some people, and some blood types do tend to react more strongly to some lectin than others, although blood type alone, in my opinion, is not sufficient reason to avoid certain foods, and certainly there's no guarantee that that will help. 
So some people tend to be more lectin sensitive while others not so much. And, and finally, we know that lectins can flare up autoimmunity by triggering cross-reactivity with different types of human tissues. So you might eat something that has a lectin in it that binds to, for example, your thyroid and may actually drive your, your Hashimoto's disease. Or if you have something like MS, you might eat a plant-based food that contains certain lectins that binds to myelin basic protein and voila, you have an MS flare-up. And there's studies on rheumatoid arthritis and, and a wide range of other things. And so, in, in fact, in, this is an area where a friend of mine has published some research looking specifically at cross-reactivity between lectins in commonly eaten foods and common autoimmunities of thyroid, of the brain, the liver, the skin, and so on. And you may have heard me talk about Dr. Aristo Vigidani before. He's a world-renowned immunologist and, and my mentor and my friend. Uh, he's published several articles that relate to how these plant-based lectins can trigger autoimmune reactivity. And others have published other articles also linking plant-based lectins to damage things like uh, gut epithelial cells or to cause changes to the function of certain types of immune cells like different categories or subcategories of lymphocytes. Now, to be clear about something that I said earlier is that lectin reactivity isn't based on isolated activation of IgE or IgG pathways. So in that sense, a lectin response is not a classic allergy, and it's not a classic sensitivity in the sense of a specific IgG pathway reaction. But that's not to say that those antibody systems are not involved at all. In fact, Dr. Vigidani shows that when lectins are an issue, there's a general activation of all the antibody systems. And when we combine that with other studies that show activation of what's called part of the innate immune system, macrophages specifically, this explains why lectin sensitivity can be so bad for some people in that it seems to fire off the entire immune system and not just a specific branch. Now, in reality, some people just do better when they avoid grains and they avoid nuts and seeds and beans and legumes and grains and nightshades, which is one explanation as to why some people thrive on a ketogenic or a carnivore diet, because those diets naturally remove a large amount of what seems to be the most problematic lectins. It might also explain why so many vegetarians and vegans can be so sick, not all, but many. So when it comes to diagnostic testing, as I mentioned earlier, there, there really are no really sophisticated, consistently reliable tests for things like lectin sensitivity, even though there's some limited offerings in, in histamines and oxalates, which we'll talk about in the next episode. So what do you do when it comes to trying to figure out if you have a lectin sensitivity or not? Well, what we can do is look at whether or not you do or do not have an autoimmunity. And we can look at some of the lists that are published um, that relate to uh, specific immune reactions or cross-reactivity between certain types of lectins and certain types of human tissue. And so we know, for example, that the spectrum of, of say, wheat germagglutinin, soy agglutinin, peanut agglutinin, pea agglutinin, bean agglutinin, and so on, have a predilection to target the cells that are involved in the structural tissues of thyroid, brain, liver, and so on. And so ideally what we want to do is we want to not just give a generic recommendation, hey, don't eat foods that contain lectins, because guess what? That's everything, including animal proteins. 
what we want to do is consider whether or not any one individual person could potentially benefit from going on a low lectin diet or a lectin free diet, which is really impossible to do, to be honest, but a low lectin diet and try to be more precise rather than saying, hey, just avoid these foods because we don't think that they're good for you but basing it on something that's at least reasonably scientific. Maybe you'll look at your blood type and you correlate it with Dadamo's work. Or maybe we correlate that with some of the things that we find in the immunological literature, like the work of Dr. Vigidani. And we target someone and say, okay, we found that you have Hashimoto's disease. We found that you have neurological autoimmunity. And that means these certain types of foods that contain these certain types of lectins are the ones that you really need to begin avoiding. Maybe we don't need to get rid of all lectins, but we need to get rid of the ones that increase the probability that you're going to have a problem with this particular class of proteins. And again, lectins are found in all foods, including animal products, but the ones that tend to be most problematic are the ones that come from the plant-based community. Not plant-based community, but the realm of plant-based foods. All right, that does it for today. Relatively short and quick. Stay tuned, and we're going to come back again in the next episode to chat about histamines and oxalates and maybe a couple of other things that come up along the way. Thanks for being here.